Welcome to Exaltation. This is Father David Masterson bringing you the beautiful, the good, and the true. Scripture today is John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Now early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple, and all the people came to hear him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard him being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the youngest. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She answered, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We come today to a very instructive and tender portion of Holy Scripture. The story of the woman caught in adultery. As we learn from John chapter 7, hatred for Jesus from the scribes and Pharisees is steadily increasing. The Jews express open opposition to Jesus every chance they have. Here in chapter 8 is the story of the woman taken in adultery. The scribes and Pharisees were out to discredit Jesus and embarrass him before the crowds. So they brought a woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. In the Jewish law of the time, adultery meant a married woman being unfaithful to her husband. This woman is in a world of hurt. She was quite literally caught in bed with a man and yanked out into the public to be exposed and condemned. Adultery was one of the gravest sins punishable by death. 
Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 command that those who commit adultery must be stoned to death. So according to Jewish law, the woman ought to be stoned. It is clear that the Pharisees set a deliberate trap to catch this woman in the act. Why? Because the man was not present. There should have been two sinners standing before Jesus, not one. But the whole thing was engineered so that the man could easily escape. This is also shown by the fact that the woman was brought along publicly and made to stand in full view of everyone. There was no need for a public humiliation. She might have been kept in custody while the case was set before Jesus for a decision. Note the unbelievable hypocrisy of the Jews. They called Jesus master in verse 4. The day before, they had called him a deceiver, an ignorant teacher, and a man possessed by the devil. Now today, they pretend respect by calling him master. But Jesus is far above flattery and obsequious behavior. He will have none of it, for he knows human nature. John 2.24 says, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to any man, for he knew all men, and he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. The message version says, But Jesus didn't entrust his life to them. He knew them inside and out, knew how untrustworthy they were. He didn't need any help in seeing right through them. What was the dilemma Jesus faced? The dilemma for Jesus was that if he said the woman ought to be stoned to death, he would be seen as unmerciful and unloving towards her. Jesus, above all other traveling rabbis, had a reputation for his great love and mercy towards sinners. He would also come into collision with Roman law, for the Jews had no power to carry out the death sentence on anyone. That must be done by the Romans alone. On the other hand, if Jesus said that the woman should be pardoned, it could be said he was teaching the Jews to break the law of Moses, making it easier for people to commit the sin of adultery. The scribes and Pharisees seem to have put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. He seems to be caught without any escape. The accusers of the woman know that Jesus leans towards mercy and kindness to sinners. But Jesus knows their intentions. He therefore does not directly answer them. He does not say whether he approves or disapproves of the law of Moses, nor does he take a position for or against Rome punishing the woman. Instead, Jesus stoops down and begins to write with his finger in the sand. Now, there are four possible explanations to Jesus writing in the sand. One, he was gaining some time to respond to their question and possibly praying to his heavenly Father to ask for wisdom. Now, there are several possible explanations to Jesus writing in the sand. One, certain Greek manuscripts add in verse 6, as though he heard them not. If this is true, then Jesus was waiting for the Jews to repeat their charges that they might realize for themselves the cruelty and malice behind their accusation against the woman. They were self-righteous and hypocritical and had no love or mercy for a lost and confused sinner. 
2. One ancient commentator suggests that Jesus was so filled with emotion and pity for the woman that he averted his eyes for a moment to compose himself before answering. 3. Probably the best explanation which comes from later commentators is that Jesus stooped down and wrote in the sand with his finger the sins of the very men who were accusing the woman. This is because the word used to describe the writing means to write a record against someone. Jesus is showing these men their own sins, possibly writing the names of the woman they were having affairs with, all the while keeping up the pretense of being holy and righteous. It is a very sad commentary on the religious life that so many professing Christian leaders are guilty of sexual sins. Far too many priests and pastors fall into sexual immorality. Surveys indicate that as many as 45% of pastors and priests have committed adultery. This ought never to be. A religious leader has a moral and spiritual responsibility to model a high standard of purity to the congregation he serves. So Jesus sits up straight as though about to give a decision and says, He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Jesus refused to act the part of a civil magistrate or to condone an outbreak of murderous passion against a poor sinner. He did something ingeniously clever. He lifted the whole discussion from the judicial to the moral sphere. The cunning and malice of the Pharisees was very great. The wisdom and mercy of the Lord Jesus was far greater still. In verse 7, Jesus says, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Jesus' response in verse 7 doesn't mean that no one but a sinless person can pronounce judgment against a sinner. What it does mean is that only a man who is inwardly pure from the desires which would lead to such a sin is worthy to cast the first stone. Whoever would find fault with this woman must have never been guilty of fornication or adultery himself, either committing the deed or desiring to commit it. Jesus does not question whether the woman should or should not be prosecuted but whether these men should be the prosecutors. The question was not about obeying or not obeying the law of Moses. It was whether these particular men, with their foul hearts, pride, and murderous hatred, were morally competent to condemn someone to death and execute them with their own hands. Of course, the answer is a resounding no. Therefore, in verse 8, Jesus again leans down and writes on the ground. It is as though Jesus was saying, Go ahead and stone this woman, but only if you are so inwardly pure that you never wanted to commit sexual sin yourself. There was a long silence as the significance of his words penetrated their hearts. Then slowly the accusers, one by one, dropped their stones and drifted away. The continuous tense in the verb, they began to go out, indicates that they all silently left in a steady procession, beginning with the elders among them who would naturally quickly grasp the implications of what Jesus was saying. 
Now let's briefly recap the contours of this story. It's a story of God's grace towards sinners. Here is the woman standing in the center of the circle. The men around her are religious leaders, Pharisees, self-appointed custodians of conduct. The other man sitting on the ground looking at the face of the woman is Jesus. Jesus has been teaching. Jesus has been loving the people. The woman has been cheating. And the Pharisees are out to stop them both. The woman caught in adultery is merely a pawn in the Pharisees' game. These religious leaders don't care about her or her reputation. Why should they care if her life is ruined? She's a necessary yet dispensable part of their plan to catch Jesus in a trap. The woman stares at the ground. Her long hair flows over her shoulders. Her tears drip hot with hurt. Her lips are tight. Her jaw is clenched. She knows she's been framed and there's nothing she can do about it. There's no need to look up because she'll find no kindness. She sees the stones in the hands of her accusers squeeze so tightly that their fingertips turn white. She thinks of running away, but where can she run? She could claim entrapment by the Pharisees, but who would believe her? She could beg for mercy, but these men only offer condemnation. The woman has nowhere to turn, but stands downcast in her shame. Now we would expect that Jesus would pronounce judgment on the hypocrites, but he doesn't. We would hope that he would carry the woman away to a safe place and shield her from harm. But that's not what happens either. Instead, his move is subtle, but with an unmistakable message. What does Jesus do? He writes in the sand. He stoops down and begins drawing in the dirt. The same finger that engraved the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai now scribbles in the courtyard floor. Verse 10 and 11 record one of the most beautiful and poignant moments in all the Gospels. Jesus straightens up from stooping towards the ground and finds himself alone with the woman at his feet. He says to the woman, Where are your accusers? Did not one condemn you? The woman trembling replies, No, Lord. Jesus responds, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. listening to Exaltation. I'm Father David Masterson bringing you the beautiful, the good, and the true, heralding the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we may experience life in Him. Come, come. 
let's continue our lesson. What powerful and memorable words. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus doesn't condemn sinners. This doesn't mean that Jesus condones her sin. He tells her to sin no more. The form of the command implies ceasing to commit an action already started. Stop your sinful habit, Jesus is telling the woman. And the no more points to the thought of no return. There can be no going back into sin again. Make a clean break with sin and amend your life. Jesus is showing to the woman God's unmerited mercy and calling her to a life of righteousness and holiness. Perhaps this woman had fallen into a sin that was not characteristic of her. She was ashamed and miserable over her deed, giving good hope that she was done with sin completely and wished with all her heart that it had never happened. We can't know her heart for certain, but we do know that Jesus forgave her and trusted to her the responsibility to rise above her sin into a new life. Beloved, we need to develop a new horror of sins to which we have grown accustomed and enjoy too much to renounce. We need God's power to resist all sin and enter into a new cleanness and holiness of life surrendered to the Holy Spirit within. What lessons can be learned from this wonderful story? First, so many of us condemn faults in others that are glaringly obvious in our own lives. Our tendency is to condemn the sins in others we most often commit ourselves, if not in action, in intention or attitude. It is less upsetting than turning around to condemn the sin in ourselves. Even when we have enough clarity to condemn our own sins, we show a preference for condemning our past sins because it's more difficult to condemn the sins we secretly intend to commit if given the right opportunity. Second, our first emotion towards those who have made mistakes ought to be pity and kindness. We must follow the example of the Lord Jesus. We ought to be loving and generous towards others rather than condemning them. St. Ephraim the Syrian, 306 to 373 AD, prayed every morning, O Lord and King, grant that I may perceive my own transgressions and judge not my brother. Third, it is not that Jesus forgave easily and treated the sin of the woman lightly. He did not abandon judgment. He only deferred it. He said, I am not going to pass a final judgment now. Go and prove that you can do better. Go and sin no more, and I will help you all the time. At the end of the day, we will see how you have lived. Jesus is reminding the woman of the reality of the last judgment. In 2 Corinthians 5, 10-11, the Bible says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body 
according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Revelation 20, 11 to 13 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. No partial repentance or sorrow for sin will do, only a full turning away from all sin. One godly man writes, Unless the heart comes to train its will to conform to the will of Christ through repentance, there is no spiritual progress. Unless the fascination with the self and its desires and definitions gives way to the Lord's definition of man's life, man lives in a state of foundational separation from God. He ultimately is his own God, for his will is made his highest authority. His comforts define what actions or beliefs he will consider acceptable. His own thoughts on truth and meaning define his reality. Our Lord Jesus calls each of us to turn away from the self entirely. He says in John 8:12, Follow me, and you will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light, and in his light we see light. Christianity is a life rooted in Christ's own life. We are not to live for ourselves, but for Christ and his kingdom. We are called to become, to enter into a newness of life that is another's, that is Christ's life. Someone said, Becoming a Christian is not so much inviting Christ into one's life as getting oneself into Christ's life. The whole Christian journey of faith is a lifetime of growing into sainthood by daily dying to self and putting on the holiness of Christ. Old ways must be put away and replaced with the new life of Christ within. Our minds are illumined to know and love the truth, but this illumination only comes through repentance. We must turn away from self, from the world, from the devil and all his distractions, and turn to Jesus himself. Finally, a word to those listening who feel defeated and discouraged by your sins. If you have ever wondered how God reacts when you fail, ponder the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Read these words and consider them deeply. Immerse yourself into the splendor of the truth of this text. Let these glorious words stand beside you as you confess the events of the darkest night of your soul. Then listen very carefully and you will hear the Lord Jesus say, I don't judge you guilty because of my death on the cross for you. I died for your sins. Turn your life over to me. Let me indwell you by my Holy Spirit, and I will make all things new. 
For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory both now and forevermore. Amen. been listening to the program Exaltation. I'm Father David Masterson with God Debt Ministries. us on the web at godetministries.org. That's G-A-U-D-E-T-E ministries.org. This gospel outreach is entirely listener-supported. Please help us proclaim the gospel on the radio to a needy world. You may donate online at our website. Your gift, large or small, is gratefully appreciated. Until next time, may God richly bless you with this word of encouragement from the prophet Isaiah. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not faint. <laughs>